I think it took a bit of time to, um, to convince people that we really could do this. Um, I'm an academic, we work in a university, uh, most of our vaccine development goes quite slowly and the main reason for that is that we need to keep raising money to do it. So we'll do a little bit of the early development work, get some good results, then write a grant application that might take a year to get funding for the next stage. So people weren't used to us being able to move very quickly, but we knew that if the barrier is money, provided somebody will stump up the money, we can make this move very quickly. Um, and I'm very fortunate to work with a, a team in Oxford who have the skills between all of us to do all of the different phases of vaccine development from the idea right through to phase three trials where we test to see if the vaccine is actually working, including having our own vaccine manufacturing facility on site, which is pretty unusual for university. But it means that we could go very quickly because we didn't have to work at that stage with any external partners to get this program moving really fast. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist, and then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining. And I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Dame Sarah Gilbert. You may know Sarah Gilbert's name uh, as it's associated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, as in the COVID vaccine, because this is now used in many countries around the world. Sarah is the Saeed Professor of Vaccinology at the University of Oxford. She works on vaccines for actually many different emerging pathogens, including ones that you may have heard of, such as influenza, MERS, and, well, SARS-CoV-2. She's a co-author of a book entitled Vaxxers, where she and Catherine Green, her colleague, sort of document, map out their journey from start to finish of developing the vaccine. Now, you're probably saying to yourself, self, Risa, how did you meet and speak with Sarah Gilbert? Well, in January of this year, we both were in Dhaka, Bangladesh. We were attending the Dhaka Lit Fest, where she was speaking about her book, as well as her work on vaccine development. Let's get to the conversation, where you're going to hear some great stories about Wimbledon and about Barbie dolls. The choice of words that we use when we're talking about science, I think, um, has to be carefully thought through. Um, scientists tend to talk in jargon all the time. They use acronyms, they use jargon that is only accessible to people working in a particular field. Uh, and it's not necessary to use the jargon all the time. Sometimes we can um, explain what the jargon means, but sometimes it's better just to try not to use it and talk in more general terms. And when we want to explain science to a more general audience, it's usually possible to do that without making it too complicated. Yeah. You've had the opportunity in the recent period to be in a position to explain science to people outside the field. And so you've probably particularly seen and felt this importance. Yes, uh, with my colleague, Kath Green, uh, I wrote a book about the work that we did on the vaccine development during the pandemic. And we started off just jotting down our notes and then reviewing it and revising it and working with an editor to make it much more um, accessible and not too long, because we both tend to waffle a lot. Um, so we spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to say things so that it was always scientifically accurate, but also understandable for the general reader. Mm. So when readers pick up the book uh, entitled Vaxxers, uh, what will they find? 
They will find our story of what we did, um, starting from the beginning of 2020 and going through to the point at which the vaccine was licensed at the, at the very end of 2020. Um, we wanted to explain two things because we were hearing from people, from some people, that they didn't trust the vaccine, firstly because they didn't know what was in it, and secondly because they felt it had all been developed too quickly. It had been rushed and therefore might not be safe. And so we wanted to explain to people what's in the vaccine, how it works, how it achieves what we need it to do, and also how we'd managed to speed up the process of getting this vaccine produced and licensed uh, because it was needed, uh, but we hadn't missed any of the essential steps. Yeah. So you were, it sounds like, addressing um, the vaccine hesitant. I'm wondering if you can share from your perspective, what is the difference between someone who's anti-vax versus vaccine hesitant? Well, we think of the people who are anti-vaxxers as being ideologically opposed to vaccination for some reason and often completely unwilling to engage with the science and understand what's really happening. People who are vaccine hesitant um, quite naturally have some concerns. They want to know what's happening, what's going to be put into their bodies. Is it a good thing for them? Is it a good thing for their family? Um, and for that group of people, the best thing we think is to explain as much as we can about what's in the vaccine, how it works, how it was tested, what it's going to do to them, um, and why it's important to have the vaccine. So that's why we wanted to explain what we were doing um, and make this information very widely known. Yeah. And we have these same groups uh, in the U.S., sort of both anti-vaxxers and the vaccine hesitant. So I really appreciate your clarification. So if we were to dive a little deeper into this concept of speed. There was a lot of concern that the vaccine came out so quickly. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the previous lab-to-jab record holder was the mumps vaccine, which was developed in the 1960s. Yeah, that's right. So firstly, it was developed in the 1960s. Um, a lot of things have developed since then. We've made advances. And secondly, there wasn't the urgent need for the mumps vaccine that there was for the COVID vaccine. So it's really not surprising that we managed to go faster with the COVID vaccine than Morris Hillerman did with the, with the mumps vaccine in the 1960s. But the, the process of, of testing the vaccine and getting the approvals is the same in both cases. Um, but we managed to cut down the gaps between the different uh, parts of the process that normally happen. And we overlapped some processes. So nothing was missed out, but the whole process was completed in a shorter period of time than ever before. Yeah, and you were you were ready. Um, first off, this wasn't your first rodeo, your first go at uh, vaccine development and working with viruses. Can you expand on what you've worked on? So I've been working in vaccine development for about 25 years now. Um, first started working on vaccines against malaria, which isn't a virus, it's a protozoan parasite. It's much more complicated. But then got interested in influenza virus um, and therefore into pandemic preparation because influenza causes several pandemics um, every century for as far back as we can really look at the records closely. And so it's always likely that there's going to be another influenza pandemic in the future. And the vaccines that we have against influenza at the moment are good at protecting against the most recent seasonal viruses, but they don't work against a new influenza virus that, that would be the sort that would come and cause a pandemic. So I started working on that field. And the way we can make vaccines more quickly is to use what we call platform technologies. So this is an, a general approach to making a vaccine, which we can apply to make vaccines against lots of different diseases. So having worked on um, a new vaccine against influenza, 
it was possible to use the same approach to develop vaccines against other viruses that we know cause outbreaks and potentially could cause pandemics. And one of those that I was working on was Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, which is a coronavirus. So we'd already done the early testing of the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or MERS coronavirus vaccine. Um, we saw very good immune responses. We hadn't got as far as working out if it's actually effective in people yet. This process was moving much more slowly. But we did know that we were getting very good immune responses and we were seeing safe responses in the people who are vaccinated with it. So when, at the beginning of 2020, a new pathogen emerged and within a few days it was discovered that it was also a coronavirus, but a new one, one that hadn't infected people before, we had a template to follow. We knew how to make a vaccine against a coronavirus because we'd been doing it already. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's sort of almost like a kismet luck, serendipity. Well, we want to kind of build on this idea because the, the fact that we'd started making a vaccine against a coronavirus, so then when a new one comes along, we know what to do. That's great. If another coronavirus emerges, we can take the same approach again. But there are lots of different viral families. And the best approach to making vaccines isn't going to be the same necessarily for all of them. So what we want to do is look at all the different viral families where um, members of that family can cause infections in people and see what vaccine development's been done. Do we have a licensed vaccine? Do we have vaccines in development? Are there any vaccines in livestock that are used for members of that viral family? What works for that viral family? And if we have examples of successful vaccines for each of the viral families, if a new virus does emerge, then again, we'll have a template to follow. We'll know what's the, the best approach to take. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. What about HIV? And why is there no vaccine for HIV? So HIV is a very different kind of virus. It causes a chronic infection. Most viral infections that we get are short term. So there are acute infections, the virus invades our body, our immune system reacts to it, overcomes the viral infection, expels it from the body, and it's gone. There are a few that cause um, chronic infections, though, where the virus stays in the body long term. And the initial infection can be very mild and almost unnoticeable, unnoticeable but the virus stays in the body. And HIV is, is a virus that continues to mutate. And so in some people, they make an immune response which controls the virus quite well to begin with, but then the virus will mutate and it changes. So in the same way that with COVID, we've been seeing new variants emerging in the population. With HIV, within one person, there'll be many, many variants that arise. And so even if the immune system has been doing a pretty good job of controlling that virus that, that they got infected with, it will change into something else. And ultimately, it always seems to escape and people then develop much more severe disease. Their T-cell count drops down. They become susceptible to lots of other infections. So that's one reason why it's really difficult to make a, a vaccine against HIV, because it's constantly changing, even within one person, and it's present in the body for long periods of time. There has been some advance, though, in making therapeutic vaccines against HIV. So there have been some trials recently where people who've been controlling their infection with drugs, with antiretroviral drugs, and have had a very low viral load, have then been able to stop taking the drugs and receive a vaccine instead, um, and to see if the new immune response that they get from being vaccinated is able to control the disease and to allow them to stop taking the antiretroviral antiretrovirals, at least for a period of time. And this is promising. It's, it's, it's not completely there yet, but it looks like there is some new developments and 
potentially in the future it will be possible to treat HIV infections with a vaccine rather than lifetime anti- antiretrovirals. Dovetailing off what you just shared, where might uh, varicella virus, chickenpox slash shingles play in this? So that's one where um, we get an an immediate illness when we first get a viral infection, we get chickenpox, but also the the virus remains in the body. It moves into nerve cells and it stays there and it's dormant and we're not aware that the virus is still there. But then um, under periods of stress... Um, the virus can break out and then it causes shingles. Um, and so it's possible to vaccinate against shingles and it's possible to vaccinate against chickenpox. You had mentioned, um, I think, a therapeutic vaccine. And so I think audience may be wondering, well, what is meant by a therapeutic vaccine and what's the difference between, say, what we get for the measles, mumps, rubella? So a therapeutic vaccine is one that's given after the infection's already taken place with the intention of um, curing the infection. Normally, when we think about vaccines, we're thinking about what we call prophylactic vaccines that we take when we're well and we develop an immune response and that immune response will protect us if we then get exposed to measles or mumps or rubella. But there's now sort of crossover between therapeutic vaccines for infectious diseases and cancer. So um, there are some therapeutic vaccines being developed for particular types of cancer, some of which are caused by initially by viral infections, such as HPV. Um, And although we now have a very widely used prophylactic vaccine against HPV, there are many people in the world who didn't benefit from that vaccine when they were adolescents and so have um, a long-term infection with HPV, which may in the future cause cancer. So there are also people working on a therapeutic vaccine so that if the people who have um, a long-term infection with HPV do start to develop signs of cancer, they can be treated with the therapeutic vaccine. Yeah. Over time, has there been more emphasis and sort of like, aha, like, oh, maybe therapeutic vaccines are more the place to put efforts as opposed to the preventive vaccines? Well, prevention is always better than cure, and prevention is always cheaper than cure. Um, so for for most people, we are going to, um, for most Uh, diseases. We're still thinking about prophylactic vaccination. We don't want to let people get infected and then try to cure them. But for some of these viral infections that cause long-term infections, particularly the ones that lead to cancer, and hepatitis B virus is another one that can lead to liver cancer if people have a chronic infection with that virus, um, it is worth developing the therapeutic vaccines. But we won't be taking that approach for all of the infectious diseases that cause the the short-lived infections. Yeah. And you know, COVID came and all of a sudden it was no longer a dress rehearsal, it was prime time. And your work sort of, um, because as you described, you've worked with this viral family before, you were ready to go. How was that received within um, your institution, within the government to actually mobilize and get a vaccine into people? I think it took a bit of time to, um, to convince people that we really could do this. Um, I'm an academic. We work in a university. Uh, Most of our vaccine development goes quite slowly. And the main reason for that is that we need to keep raising money to do it. So we'll do a little bit of the early development work, get some good results, then write a grant application. It might take a year to get funding for the next stage. So people weren't used to us being able to move very quickly. But we knew that if the barrier is money, provided somebody will stump up the money, we can make this move very quickly. Um, And I'm very fortunate to work with a a team in Oxford who have the skills between all of us to do 
all of the different phases of vaccine development from the idea right through to phase three trials where we test to see if the vaccine is actually working, including having our own vaccine manufacturing facility on site, which is pretty unusual for university. But it means that we could go very quickly because we didn't have to work at that stage with any external partners to get this program moving really fast. Yeah. Was there any element from your perspective of not not being heard, not being listened to, not being believed? I think it, it did take a bit of time to convince people um, that we really could do this and that we should be doing this and it was appropriate that um, we were going as quickly as we could. What happened in the UK was that um, the government formed the um, UK Vaccines Task Force and they put Kate Bingham in charge. She's a venture capitalist and she's used to assessing different technologies, medical technologies, and deciding whether to invest in them, knowing that many of the, these investments will not pay off, but spreading your bets. And if you invest in enough different technologies, you're likely to find one that's going to work. So she took the approach for COVID vaccines that she wanted her team to invest in as many different approaches to making COVID vaccine as possible so they had the best chance that at least one of them would be successful. And she set up a system of reviewing vaccines that are, it were in very early stages of development in spring of 2020, asking for information about all of them, and then with a level playing field, deciding which ones they were going to invest in. So by that time, we already had a lot of data um, from the early research on the vaccine, and we were able to put this forward to the Vaccines Task Force, and they said, yes, we'll support um, your program, and then the money came through. So once we actually had a scientific assessment of what we were doing, then it was deemed appropriate that we should continue and that we should go as fast as possible. Yeah. In terms of the actual production of the vaccine and, you know, where uh, acceptable standards were being uh, maintained, there is a difference, it seems, with the production of the Pfizer versus the Oxford-AstraZeneca well, I think the big difference in the production of the vaccines was that AstraZeneca worked with a very wide network of vaccine manufacturers around the world, whereas Pfizer kept things in-house. So these are two different approaches to making as much vaccine as possible. Um, but the approach that AstraZeneca took was to work with other uh, manufacturers and transfer the technology to each of them so that many different manufacturers could be making the same vaccine, which could then be used more widely because there will be more of it. And that's not a simple thing to do. It was a great deal of work for the manufacturing team at AstraZeneca to work with each of these manufacturers to transfer over the instructions and the materials and then work with them and look at what they were doing and make sure that all the, the quality control tests were turning out as they should and that the tests were being used correctly and only then would those manufacturers start to to make the vaccine that was going to be used. Yeah I mean it seems like a huge effort to maintain that quality control. It is a big effort to to transfer that to so many different sites around the world um, really took a lot of work. Were you involved with any aspect of that of traveling and, and looking at sort of the production in different facilities? No there was very little traveling <laughs> because because it was 2020 and we were all in lockdown. Um, and I wasn't involved in detail. Um, Kath Green, who I wrote the book with, she was much more involved in, first of all, we had to transfer the technology into AstraZeneca and they had to assess it and they had to work out how they could then transfer that out to lots of other manufacturing sites. So we have our own manufacturing facility, but we think of it as 
a kind of like a local restaurant where a small team of people, like it's like a family-run restaurant where everybody knows how to do it and everything's done correctly, but there aren't really many complicated procedures for doing things. We, we rely to a certain extent on people's knowledge um, and the fact that we're a team and we work together and we know what each member of the team does. But that doesn't really work when you're going to move to a very large scale. You have to have processes to control all of these things. So we had to work with AstraZeneca to get the uh, the manufacturing that we do on a very small scale ready for use on a very large scale so that everybody, uh, all these manufacturing sites around the world, could follow exactly the same processes every time. Um, and that took quite a bit of doing. Yeah. And I'm going to ask a question that just is a basic. Like, is there an animal model that's used to before it moves to humans? Yes, uh, we tested it in in three different animals. First of all, we immunized some mice just to check that we get the immune response we expect from the vaccine. That's just like a quality control step. And then um, we tested it in in small animals, which we then infected with. Um, with coronavirus to see if it worked and then it went into monkeys into non-human primates who were vaccinated and then deliberately exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, to see that we got protection against infection. There was some work in the 1960s done on a vaccine against another respiratory virus called respiratory syncytial virus or RSV and unfortunately with that vaccine which was a different type of vaccine um, some of the children who were immunised actually got worse disease when they were then infected with the virus than children who hadn't been immunised. So this is a, a phenomenon known as enhanced disease after vaccination. It's very rare, but if we're working on a new vaccine, we have to test in animals to make sure that that's not going to happen. Now, because of what we know about the immune response to the type of vaccine we work on, we would have predicted that it was not going to happen, but we still have to prove it's not going to happen before we can start immunising people with it. So it was very important to immunise some some non-human primates and then expose them to the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus and show that they did not get worse disease, they were protected against the infection. This is super interesting, and I wondered, is this related to, you know, some people will say, oh, I don't, in the States when I'm working in the emergency department, oh, I don't take the flu vaccine, I get sick from it. That's not quite the same thing. So some people say that they get sick from taking the flu vaccine. Well, they can't get flu from the flu vaccine because it's inactivated. It is made from, the the, the vaccine that's used in adults is made from live influenza virus, but it's inactivated before it's given to anybody as a vaccine. So it can't give you an influenza infection. But what it does do is stimulate your immune response. And actually, when we get viral infections, it's our own immune response that makes us feel ill. It's all of the different chemicals that are going around our bodies as our bodies fight off the virus that make us feel unwell. And we can get that reaction from having a vaccine as well as from having a viral infection. So people associate that with with being infected and feeling unwell, but actually it's the immune system fighting off the bug or responding to the vaccine that's doing that to us. So in a way they should celebrate the fact that their body works. Yeah, yeah, just recognise that um, the body's doing what it's supposed to do. Although many people don't have reactions to vaccines in that way, they don't feel ill, and yet they still make a very good immune response. So you shouldn't think that if you don't have a reaction, if you don't feel ill after a vaccine, that it's not working. It's an individual thing. Some people react in different ways. I'm so glad you made that clarification. And right there, we had a live opportunity to make sure words matter. Yes. 
Words matter. So in the States right now, they're talking a lot about this triple threat, RSV, influenza, COVID. And so I'm going to ask the question, I think some of the audience members are wondering, so why isn't there an RSV uh, vaccine? Well, there is an RSV vaccine that's in a very advanced stage of development and will probably be licensed before too much longer. As I said, there was a problem with an RSV vaccine that was made in the 1960s. And it was used in children, and some of the children died when they then got an RSV infection. And that really stopped any RSV vaccine development for, for a long time after that. Nobody wanted to go back to that situation. So it took a long time to understand why there were the problems with that vaccine and how we could make different types of vaccines that didn't have those problems. And then there was a great deal of work done in um, an animal model because cows also get um, RSV. Bovine RSV affects calves uh, in a very similar way to infecting um, young humans. Um, and so it was possible to use the calves as a model for human babies and vaccinate them with the new types of vaccines and be absolutely certain that they weren't going to get enhanced disease after vaccination. Um, and so finally, um, vaccine development for RSV restarted. And now it looks really very promising. How did you get interested in viruses and the translation to vaccines? Well, going back to when I was at school, I always wanted to understand how biological systems work. How does the human body work? Um, how do microorganisms work? And then the thinking was that if we understand how systems work, we can change them. We can modify them. We can make them do different things. So I got interested in biotechnology, um, in using microorganisms to make recombinant proteins, which could be used in medicine. Um, and for a while, I worked for a biotech company doing exactly that. We were making synthetic human blood proteins, which could be used to make um, blood products or, or replacements for blood products, which didn't have to come from blood donation, which would have certain advantages. But then I moved into back into academia. I went to work for Oxford University, initially looking at the genetics of interactions between the malaria parasite and the people who get infected with the malaria parasites. But that led very quickly to uh, a project on developing vaccines against malaria. And from there, developing vaccines more generally and developing the technologies that we use to make vaccines. Yeah. And how would you compare contrast academia versus the health tech uh, private world? So in the health tech private world, um, companies can be very short-lived. Um, they depend on investment, they depend on funding coming in. Sometimes really great technology, really great ideas doesn't get developed because things just, you know, the stars just didn't align and the investment wasn't there. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad idea. Sometimes people who have an idea that's not so great are really good at using money or raising money, um, and those companies can go for a while before it's discovered that actually this is this is not a good approach. In academia, I think um, we are trying to do more basic research, but some of us are also trying to translate that research into into benefit, into applications. And so there are some academic groups that will just study how things work, and other groups like the one that I work with, which will then try to apply that to have some benefit in our case for human health and that's not true of every academic group but that's the that's the field that I'm most interested in. Private versus academic is there a difference in the speed with which you can move? I think there is a difference in the speed if we really have to go very quickly academic groups can move fast 
we have more freedom to um, bring different collaborators together and, and get things going than companies can necessarily do. Really what we need is a partnership. And that's what we had in 2020, the partnership between Oxford University and AstraZeneca, where we each played to our strengths, I think was really important. So we got the vaccine development underway, moving quickly, always knowing that we were going to need a, a big pharma partner who could manufacture this vaccine at scale and distribute it around the world because the university is never going to be able to do that. Um, and we had a great partnership where I think we each did the, the best that we could do and we worked together um, because... The reason that worked was because we had the same aim in mind. And I think if everybody knows what they're aiming for uh, and they're all trying to achieve the same thing, then without very, very complicated and detailed planning and organisation, it's possible to achieve that. Yeah. And um, how would you explain to audience members that are wondering, like, why is there always another vaccine I have to go get or, you know, uh, a booster? And why does the virus keep emerging and changing? And, you know, why are we still living with this? Well, if we're thinking about coronaviruses, there are four other coronaviruses that infect humans. Um, we call them the seasonal human coronaviruses. Um, they've been infecting humans for decades or centuries now. Some of them only discovered in recent decades, though. And we don't worry about them because what happens is we get exposed to them in childhood. Um, and often when ch children get viral infections, then they're really not very unwell at all. They develop an immune response. They retain that immune memory. And then when they get infected again later in life, their immune response will kick in. Their immune response gets boosted and they have better memory for the next time. And it's only when you get an outbreak of these particular coronaviruses in a facility where there are a lot of people who are immunocompromised that it becomes a problem. So in care homes, we occasionally see small outbreaks of um, seasonal human coronaviruses. But what's probably happening there is that staff and visitors are also infected, but they're not seriously ill because they've got a good Im immune response and that protects them. The SARS-2 virus has only just moved into humans from the end of 2019. It's not adapted, or at that point, it wasn't well adapted to transmitting between humans because it come from another species. And so over time, it will adapt until it gets better at um, transmitting between humans. And that's what we've seen as the variants have emerged. They've become much more transmissible, much more easy to, to catch the infection. And it's a virus that we don't have immunity to. So if somebody is already in a situation of having a slightly weakened immune system due to age or some medical condition, and then they get exposed to a virus they have no immunity to, they're going to get a severe infection. But as we've seen with, um, with COVID, um, young people who are otherwise healthy, children getting infected, in most cases, the infection is not serious and they fight it off and they develop their immune response. But the vaccines have allowed us to fast track developing that immune response. So having a first vaccine and then a booster and then a, a, um, a, another vaccine later on means that we are quickly developing the immunity against the new coronavirus that we would normally take a lifetime to develop against the existing coronaviruses. When all this uh, went live, like I said, prime time with the development of a vaccine, uh, you started getting a lot of attention, uh, a lot of fame, uh, awards. And I'm wondering how that felt. Well, it was great to be to have the work recognised on behalf of the whole team to see what we'd done because we did work very hard. Lots of people worked very, very long hours for months on end uh, and it was a, a big effort. People made a lot of sacrifices. So to have that recognised was, was really very good. Yeah. 
and Wimbledon? Yeah, Wimbledon was a bit of an odd one. I wasn't expecting what happened to happen. Um, For those of us that weren't there, what, what happened? So what happened was um, I was invited to sit in the Royal Box on the first day of um, the Wimbledon tournament. And just before the players came out, uh, there was an announcement of uh, the fact that I was there in the Royal Box and it precipitated a standing ovation from the crowd. And this, this doesn't normally happen. My expectation was that there might be a few um, camera shots of the people who are sitting in, in the Royal Box that day. That's what normally happens. But I, I wasn't expecting that this announcement to be made. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that feel? Well, I, I wished I'd had some warning. <laughs> Um, and what, what I didn't like about it was the fact that I knew that um, behind me in the box there were many NHS workers who, who were there because they'd made such a contribution in the pandemic. And I wanted to recognise their contribution. But actually the, the standing ovation for the vaccine developers and my colleague, um, Professor Sir Andrew Pollard, who was the chief investigator on the clinical trials, was there in the Royal Box as well. Um, I wanted to, to move on from that and then be able to acknowledge the contribution that the NHS workers had been had been making for so long as well. But the standing ovation went on, and then I think the announcer wanted to, to move on to the next stage and bring the players onto the court. So we didn't really get the chance to celebrate the NHS at that point, which I would have liked to do. There have been other awards, Rosalind Franklin and uh, recently King Faisal. Yeah, that's a, a very recent award from Saudi Arabia that's just been announced this week. Yeah, and all related to the vaccine development. Yes. And the Barbie doll? The Barbie doll is um, part of a series of six Barbie dolls that was made to represent women around the world who worked in pandemic response. So some nurses, some doctors, um, myself in vaccine development. Um, and it's something that the makers of Barbie do from time to time. Sometimes they'll have a series of sports women, uh, but they provide kind of representation of different role models for girls. Yeah, I think it's been, I think Mattel does it. They make the Barbie dolls. And my understanding is they're not available for purchase. It's sort of one is made. And where is the Barbie doll of uh, Dame Sarah Gilbert currently? That Barbie doll is currently residing in the Oxford Museum of the History of Science. Mm -hmm. And that was a decision on your, your end? Yeah, I was, I was sent the Barbie doll. Um, and both the History of Science Museum in Oxford and the Science Museum in London have been very actively engaged in collecting artefacts from the pandemic. And there's actually there's an ex exhibition at the moment in London at the Science Museum called Injecting Hope. Um, and um, they both contacted me and asked if they could receive the Barbie doll and exhibit it. And um, I told them they'd have to share. Great. You know, um the audience is familiar, and I did share with you ahead of time, you know, I really am interested when I speak with my guests um, in voice, and um, when people, and so in this case, I'm you, when did you realize you had a voice, and when did you start using that voice vis-a-vis -vis our conversation uh, as a scientist? I think it was quite late for me. Um, it wasn't really until the pandemic that I started to um, be much more heard, I think, uh, because obviously I had something very important to say. Uh, and I was happy, along with my colleagues, to engage in press conferences to talk about the work we were doing in vaccine development. Um, I was on a number of um, news programmes talking about it, and people kind of latched onto that. And 
I think I was seen as a trusted voice. I was told that at one point in an interview, I was asked a question, and I said that we don't know the answer to that. And the fact that I said that we don't know, but this is what we're going to do to find out, meant that people trusted me because I wasn't um, trying to make it look as though I knew everything and people should just believe what I was saying. I was trying to give them the facts. And at that point, the facts were, we don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, so then I was somewhat in demand. And with with the book that I wrote with Kath Green as well, uh, we, we wrote that because we wanted to explain the science to people. So then we went and did press conferences about that. We, we go to literary festivals as well sometimes and talk about it more to very general audiences. So that meant that uh, we were being asked to come and talk about the science. Yeah. To what extent have you thought about your legacy and what you would like your legacy to be? I haven't really thought about legacy at all. I'm still in the thick of trying to get the research done um, something which was maybe a bit unexpected that happened to me was that many of my research team left they had great job offers in our manufacturing facility our very highly trained team were highly sought after by other vaccine manufacturers and um, we lost people who, who moved into other jobs and that's great for their career progression and individually I'm really pleased for each one of those people but Across my team, um, we lost a lot of people, uh, and so I'm now engaged in trying to rebuild that team, bringing the money so that we can get a new team working and uh, you know, continuing the research. Yeah, I'll assert, I want to say that, assert, um, that in terms of legacy, um, women and women in STEM, and the fact that there's a Barbie doll um, made in the likeness of you, where have you along the way invested in women, invest, invested in other marginalized groups in science to sort of help create the diversity of representation? So associated with the Barbie doll, um, I said I would only do this if there was a donation made to an organization um, which supports career development for women in science. There's a website that um, students can go to and put in some information about what their interests are and it will suggest suitable careers because one of the things I say about vaccinology is it's such a broad field that there's always something no matter what your interests are no matter what you like doing there is something that will be of interest to you we have people who work purely with the numbers and we have people who work with the people who are being vaccinated in the clinic and everything in between so that you know there's lots of variety um, and I think it's really important to find something that you're interested in and that matches your skills and your interests so this website uh, was set up to help girls think about what different aspects of STEM subjects they might be interested in and which courses they might apply for. Um, so I um, asked for a donation to be made to support that work. And um, I've also been involved in some analysis of the um, employment of women who are in the team at Oxford that worked on the vaccine. And we uh, actually, two thirds of it is female. We have very strong female representation until we get to the very top levels. Um, so at the professorial level, then it was two thirds male. So we still have a little way to go to, to change that. But I think um, we are making some progress now. And I've been working with some of my colleagues to think about how we can improve that still further and how other groups might apply um, different ways of encouraging women to, to work in STEM subjects. Yeah. As a final message to our audience, um, perhaps we have some that are vaccine hesitant or really are, are not sure what to do, or they're trying to convince their family members. What message would you offer? I think if you're vaccine hesitant, first of all, think very carefully about 
what information you're receiving, who you're receiving it from? Is it a really knowledgeable, trusted source? There are very good sources of information. Um, I've worked with the Vaccine Knowledge Project in Oxford. So there's a website called the Vaccine Knowledge Project where you can get accurate information about the vaccines, the different types of vaccines, how they work, what's in them. Um, which is much better than just receiving something on social media from somebody who really doesn't know what they're talking about and maybe have some other agenda. So I think that's the first thing, is to talk to people who really understand the situation and get the full information, and then you can make a, a much better informed decision. The Risa Wrap-Up. Many, many thanks to Sarah for making the time, taking the time to sit and speak with me. I loved our conversation. And quite honestly, like Sarah and I really got into the science of this. And she actually has been doing this for decades. This is her work. And it was almost as if it was a dress rehearsal. And when it was time to get on stage, she was ready. So I'm so glad her work and she are appreciated, respected, noticed. So audience, I would ask, please get vaccinated. Please encourage vaccinations. Trust science. Trust scientists. And know that we are better because of scientists and women such as Sarah Gilbert. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.